Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. All things move toward their end. On that, you can be sure. For almost two decades, Facebook has dominated headlines in the lives of its users. It's been blamed for genocides, pointed to as a vector of disinformation, and depressed you as you scrolled past high school acquaintances that seemed to be doing so much better than you. But now, its founder, Mark Zuckerberg is obsessed with a virtual world no one wants. The company's stock is down 70% of its peak. It's lost $800 of its market capitalization. And its business model is starting to feel under siege. Are we finally witnessing the end of Facebook? With us here on Cyber Today to answer that question is Motherboard staff writer Edward Anguiso Jr. It's the subject of his new piece, Facebook's Monopoly is Imploding Before Our Eyes. Stick around. We might just talk about face. We might just talk about Twitter, too. At the end of this, Edward, how are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks for having me on. So let's cut to the chase. Is Facebook over? I think you know Facebook is going to be around for a while simply because of how much money it has and is and flows through it. You know. A lot of this panic was set off by a small decrease in advertiser revenue, but this is significant because advertiser revenue is not consistently decreased, and it did over the past few quarters. Um, In the midst of it posting large losses from investing and committing to the metaverse pivot through Reality Labs subdivision, right? So it's, it's less that Facebook is over than this is an opportunity to look at how as powerful Facebook might feel, it also is a lot more fragile or has become a lot more fragile in the last few years, surprisingly, um, in a few key areas because of missteps, uh, miscalculations, uh, regulatory scrutiny, public backlash, um, you know, and, and, and delusions of grandeur from some of the executives. Right. This has always kind of been my thing, like not to mitigate the very real bad stuff that Facebook has done. But there I think that in the moment when we're discussing these things, there's this tendency to view these companies as these totalizing forces in our life that are never going away. Um, the, The truth is, like on a long enough timeline, like things will weaken and fade. And uh, I think the shock here is that it happened to Facebook so fast. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's entirely right. You know, Facebook is a company that has about two billion users, um, you know, almost 200 million in the U.S. It's constantly growing like two, three percent every quarter. Um, it has its tentacles and so, so many walks of life. Right. It has all these marketplaces. It has communication platforms. It has other social networks. It has a virtual reality it has attempts to get into e-commerce and so on and so forth, that it feels like a staple in an institution, maybe in people's daily lives. But I think that's also because of how much it's tried to insert itself into the landscape of the digital world, which then is where some of the weaknesses can emerge because it's, you know, its strength is premised on people using it in digital, you know, in digital space a certain way and the economics of that place staying the same more or less. Right. Can you kind of lay out how Facebook became 
a juggernaut because it wasn't necessarily that everyone was sharing photos of like what they did on the weekend. Right. That was part of it, but it was, that's not how they really made money. Yeah. I mean, it's an advertising platform, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. first and foremost, Facebook is a place, a platform to sell ads. Right. Um, and becomes more and more increasingly lucrative as one thanks to how many people are on it and the things that they do on it. Um, and Facebook has tried to make sure that people do more things on it or do more types of certain things on it, uh, whether that's, you know, it's attempt to introduce shopping on Instagram, uh, dating on Facebook, uh, create uh, message forms, create groups, create uh, marketplaces. You know, all of these things are attempts to, to get people on there, of course, and ostensibly to connect the world. But really, it's an advertising um, platform. And that has been the core revenue model for Facebook, as long as it has existed, it has posted massive, you know, amounts of money from that. And that's where a lot of its success has come from. So, you know, the metaverse and how just the disaster that it has been so thus far uh, gets a lot of press right now, but it's not the thing that's eating away necessarily at Facebook's core business model, right? It's not the thing that's attacking the advertising. Um, you write in your piece about what's going on at Apple. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah. So Apple was able to introduce some privacy changes that restricted basically how much information was, uh, you know, users of, of uh, its devices would be giving up in an iOS 14 update. Um, and some of these privacy changes basically result in undermining your value as, you know, an eyeball for advertisers, essentially. Um, the accuracy of some of the ads um, and and the rationale for putting an ad in a certain place, right? So that's undermined and cost Facebook. I think they estimate $10 billion um, from their advertiser operation. And there's also been... As a result of that, there have been you know cascading effects where advertisers also had hard times placing ads in Facebook's other products, right? So in Instagram, of course, and the and you know Facebook itself, but also in uh, Reels, which is the Instagram TikTok clone um, that has been you know att- that the company has attempted to roll out to disrupt and and push out TikTok unsuccessfully, though. And what about uh, the cut that Apple takes? It's, it's oh, yeah. changing to 30% or it is, or what's the deal there? Yeah, yeah. So that's also going to be a big one. You know, um, there have been battles over the past few years, I would say, but more recently, the last year or two over app stores um, and how much uh, the provider of a platform's app store is able to take from each sale. Um Apple has been, you know, walking around with a baseball bat demanding 30% from everybody uh, for for a while now and has been largely successful in getting it, um, fighting court battles um, to ensure that they get it or at least that compromises are in their favor. And now in in pushing, um, you know, Facebook or complicating the, the picture of Facebook applications the Facebook services being on the app store. Cause now, you know, you have to pay this huge commission fee and then Facebook has to figure out how to recoup that or how to incorporate that. Do you hike the fees? Who do you hike the fees on? Who are you, in, who are you passing off that cost to? Right. Cause Facebook's not going to eat that. No company wants to, to eat a, a commission cost. They usually just pass it on to someone. So it's these things increases in costs. 
um, less information coming in for advertisers um, and, and, and slowing growth also in user adoption have been some of the things that have compounded to starting to see advertiser revenue decline for the first few times. Right. And it kind of points to, it's interesting because it points to Apple being more of a traditional monopoly, right? They're the real monopoly. Uh, yeah. I mean, here, like they control, uh, they control them. They control the access to their marketplace. Right. I mean, Apple has spent a long time creating this little, you know, walled garden, right. The walled garden. Um, to try to ensure that you got to pay a certain fee to come in because they have access to these billions of users who are using their phones and devices and other platforms um, that are exclusive to Apple and iOS systems. Uh, and it works to an extent, right? That's a good way to leverage market power um, into forcing other companies to comply with your demands. And so, you know, that's the sort of stuff we would expect to see from a monopoly, not just leveraging profits in one division to take control of another, but also being able to set the terms of competition um, in, in various sectors um, and preventing other people from, or threatening to prevent other people from entering them if they don't play by the rules. And it's not like Facebook can just opt out, right? Because iPhone is the, it, you know, other people have Android of course, and there's other systems, but iPhone is the mobile market. Right. Yeah. If you're not playing there, you're walking away from billions of dollars. So you, Mm -hmm. you have to do what they say and there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, it would be, it would be ridiculous. I think from, from the company's perspective to walk away from Apple. So you just have to figure out, you know, one, what to do in the meantime and who to eat the, you know, who to make eat the cost. Then two, like, are there any lobbying or legal strategies that we can use to try to undermine this? Can we, can we get consumers to fight against it? Can we, can we convince them that it's actually bad for them? Can we convince lawmakers that it's bad? Can we convince industry folks that it's bad? You know, like, what are the ways we can undermine this while we suffer it in the meantime? Yeah, and one of the the kind of the fascinating end runs that Facebook tried to do, you talk about in the piece, and I completely forgotten about it. There's so many like weird little blips along the way of different things that they've tried. Uh, what was Libra? <laughs> yeah, Libra was a Libra was a. It's funny because I think I, I I think it's fair to forget about it because I know a lot of people also you know have, and I think also at the time I did forget how ridiculous some of the discussion around it was but basically Libra was an attempt to say hey we're going to create um we're going to create a digital currency a cryptocurrency backed by a basket of um sovereign currencies um and you know this is going to allow people to use our currency uh in our communication system as a way to pay other people across the world immediately and transfer it out into those other currencies uh so you know they basically were proposing a way to technically, if they wanted to, they claimed they didn't want to, but a way to compete with other currencies. So understandably, everyone said, no, uh, you can't do that. When you can't make your own currency. You can't undermine our ability to you know, control our own currencies. Um, in theory, that uh, the, the fears that Libra would be able to do that in one way or another. And so it was killed ceremoniously or stalled, right? So Libra was 
pitched and so was a cryptocurrency wallet. Zuckerberg went in front of Congress. They said, what the hell are you doing? He said, okay, we'll pause it and we'll only do a U.S. only version. Uh, Janet Yellen and, and Jerome Powell also killed that. Uh, and he said and, it would, he said it would strengthen the dollar, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is, um, it was in the midst of saber rattling about China. Right. So like they were pitching Libra, not just as like, Oh, this is a currency that we're going to have, but you know, one of the one of the arguments was that China has a really expansive communications network and a really integrated payment system, and they are advanced enough in implementation and deployment of it that they can not only scale it out throughout the country but also bring it to other countries. And we have nothing on par with that except Facebook, and that's it. Right? We don't have a international payments. Uh, processor integrated into the communication network like that. So let us do it because then we will be more able to compete with China in markets that are in Asia or in Africa or in Europe or in other regions that the company is trying to, you know, get an upper hand in. Uh, so you do that and, you know, well, it's, it's for national security. We'll all be better off. I love the balls of walking up to the federal government and just ask, telling it like, Hey, give up the seat of your power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's a little bad shit. It was ridiculous. You know, the peak of hubris uh, to think that anyone in D.C. would would say yes to it. But that's also a testament to like just how much power was coursing through Facebook and how delusional these people were. I mean, like people were talking about Zuck running for president. You remember that for yeah. years and years? Well, and he was <laughs> and he was doing that. Uh, he was doing that thing where. I can't remember what he called it, but he was doing the, the campaign where he was like going out and talking to normal people. And it almost, balls, yeah, when yeah. He was wearing suits and shit. <laughs> it was like, he's thinking about it. He's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and now can't, I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine him running for like mayor or something, you know, like even a mayor that he runs a town that he runs or something. Um, because I think that over the, t- you know, the Libra, uh, kind of clarified some things. I hope it clarified things for people, which is that this is a company that, you know, the reason why Libra, it wanted Libra to happen is because it needed something other than advertising and finance is a great idea. Finance and communications combinations have been incredibly profitable for the Chinese companies that have done them um, and are the basis for super apps. They're the basis for incredibly profitable enterprises. They're integrated into gig economy apps. They're integrated into uh, basic everyday apps for whether it's delivery, whether it's healthcare provision, you know, whether it's logistics, um, whether it's uh, staffing, like there's all sorts of ways in which if you merge a communications and a finance service, you can make and print money um, as a company. And Facebook needs something like that other than advertising because the advertising situation we have, the little bubble we have is not going to last. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, let me ask you this then. Uh, let's talk about ads on Facebook. When was the last time you were on Facebook? <laughs> when was the last time I was on Facebook? Um, I think the last time I was on the face on the blue Facebook, probably uh, February, I think. And how did you, uh, what was your experience of it? And how did you find the ads? <laughs> um, incoherent. <laughs> I think <laughs> it was, I was already confused with updates from people I hadn't seen in a while. And then the ads had nothing, uh, to do with me. Um, I got ads for, um, I got, di- I got diaper ads 
I got uh I got a lot of weed ads. I don't smoke any weed. Um I got a lot of uh gardening at, you know, slightly relevant. Uh what else did I get? A car. A lot of car ads. I don't drive. Don't know how to drive either, so um it's it, it's it's funny. I have one I have like one group chat that will not fucking leave. Um I've begged, I've tried, and they just they won't go. Um, so it's the only thing I check in there. I, I like pull it up to just see what's going on in that group chat. And then you inevitably scroll for like 30 seconds because, uh, you, I've got a sick mind. Um, and yeah, the, it, the only way I can feel like I can describe it is it's like if Tim and Eric were making, <laughs> you know, like I, all right, I'm an insomniac. So for a lot of my life, I, I've spent a lot of time like watching broadcast television after 2 a.m., which is when it, it you're not watching TV anymore. It's just infomercials and ads. And it's like if Tim and Eric were putting that kind of thing together and, and putting it on online, it's real weird stuff. Um, and because now of the that you say that, it kind of reminds me of uh, that the Tim Heidecker murder trial, if you've ever seen that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, what a what a bizarre bit of performance art is Tim Heidecker in general, but that's a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, and because I get uh, because I write a lot of stuff about like defense uh, and weapons, I, I get I get some real dark, weird things <laughs> that get served up to me. Um, but let's or let's let's back up just a minute. I want to talk about in the conversation. Uh, You're talking about super apps. Um, and it, it's interesting that that's the, the phrase you use because we, when you look at Facebook outside of America, and especially WhatsApp, which it owns, so it's important to remember that Facebook is not just like Facebook in the metaverse. It is also WhatsApp, Instagram, um, some other companies I'm probably forgetting right now. But WhatsApp is the big one. And outside of America and other parts of the world, Facebook is already kind of a super app, right? Yeah, I would say so. Because I think, you know, like Facebook has been able to convince some governments over time or or pilot programs where it offers the core bit of services uh, it has as uh, Facebook basics, right? As, you know, come in, um, let us you know, offer uh, internet connectivity. Um, let us offer uh, communication with your family. You know, it has, and, and F- Facebook's uh, free basics is really interesting because it has come and gone and come and gone, you know, so many times, right? Um, it was like kicked out of India, if I remember correctly, in 2016. And then kept expanding silently in Africa over the next few years. Um, and has been, you know, attempted to be heralded or do partnerships with civic society groups as like a way to increase literacy or a way to increase access to microloans or a way to, you know, increase, um, you know, data connectivity so we can get more granular data about yield, farm yields or water health, you know, but again, what is it really just about? It's really, you know, trying to figure out another way to expand uh experiment with the advertising giant and see if there's another avenue uh for revenue right because that is really when you if once you understand facebook's need for and understanding that it has to get something outside of 
advertising revenue, um, a lot of its moves start to make a lot more sense, right? It understands the advertising bubble allowed it to get to billions and billions of users. But once the bubble burst, if it doesn't have a real way to continue to generate um, you know, revenue, it's not going to be able to offer these services for free and it's going to have to figure out another revenue stream. Um, maybe that's commodifying data. Maybe that's in a more outright way, or maybe that's just offering a new service that's integral to everybody's life, but it has to find out a new one. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. If you are watching the live stream, there will be no ads. If you're listening to the podcast, though, here is a word from our sponsor. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We are talking with Edward Anguiso Jr. about the end question mark of Facebook or maybe the the metamorphosis it's going through as it kind of falls off the fang uh, label and becomes just another tech company. Um, have you ever used Facebook basic? Uh, no, I have um, family that has used it. Um, and some friends I know in other countries have used it. Um, and, you know, at the at a very basic level, the free basics thing does allow you access free of charge, right, um, to some things, uh, you know, weather, uh, news, um, jobs, job listings. Um, but, you know, there are a few things that it's like with a with a with an asterisk, right? Um Ostensibly, you know, of course, you have to use a smartphone and, you know, a lot of my family um, and parts of Kenya and, you know, and throughout Africa don't actually uh, need or use smartphones, right? They're using flip phones, you know, relatively simple uh, phones for text messaging um, and communication with one another. Um, so, you know, right off the bat, you're going to have to, you know, eat a little bit more of a cost and that's going to open you up to all these other things, right? That Facebook would like for you to use like it's other services, it's other goods, um, more advertising or uh, surveillance from advertisers. So but on the one hand, I think like, you know, if we got if we're being generous to it, yes, it does, you know, allow um, it does allow some connection to the Internet at limited bandwidths um, and with some access to things that might help people. It's actually how I keep up with that group chat on my phone because I I I refused to install the apps. I did once on an older phone and it was, uh, I found it unpleasant. Um, so if you just use, you can just pull it up in a browser, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in the little 90s portal, right? Yep. Yeah. You can just pull it up in a browser and it makes it really easy to just use the chat function and not look at the page at all. Um, yeah. and it, it's been useful for me in that way. I know that's not the use case for it, uh, all over the world or here in America, but I just, uh, uh, it's, it, it's interesting that, that, that is out there, um, and that it's usable. And, you know, we had that, 
that incident where their servers went down. Was it like a year or two ago? Yeah, uh, yeah. In, I think in, my birthday. I, I remember that because I I was like writing. Um, I was writing right. Uh, I stopped to to write about it because I think like it was a really that was a really illustrative example, right? Maybe maybe you don't put everything on one app, right? <laughs> you know, a single point uh, of failure is maybe bad. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's great in that you get to illustrate how like, hey, you know, me, like we should, you should be able to talk to people that you love across the world. The Whether you should do it on one platform and one communications network is another question entirely, right? I think there's an assumption that you scale things up and we'll just reap the benefits of the scale and reduced, reduced costs or additional, uh, or, or sorry to back up uh, that will reap the benefits from like network effects. So this idea that like the more people you add, the cheaper it gets to add iterative people and do things for these iterative people. Right. But I mean, the reality is like, you know, you see something like Facebook's communications networks, like WhatsApp and having a single point of failure, but also you have growing, growing problem and issue with content moderation, uh, with disinformation uh, that gets worse, the larger you scale and the solution is not uh, you just hire more people. Um, or outright, the solution is not you just hire more people um to sit down and and manage the thing, right? So I think that's also part of it. Where like these Facebook has also been a a good argument against itself. The larger it has gotten, the harder it has been to manage, and the more clear that it's been. You need a decentralized or like pieces of these functions connected to one another, right? Let's switch gears just a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, the thing that's in the headlines all the time is this metaverse, the virtual reality that he is pushing so hard. Why do you think, I mean, he had to know he was going to lose money. Um, why do you think that this is the thing that he has chosen to burn everything down to try to achieve? I think, you know, the way that people use the internet, there is no natural way to log on and use the internet. This money is about creating infrastructure, incentives, push, uh, you know, nudges, biases um, that compel you and everyone else to incorporate the metaverse into your lives. It's not that, you know, there might, maybe there is some world in which the metaverse is a good thing, you know, but that's not really what is the, what's going on here. What's going on here is you, he has to subsidize the creation of a system where people can log onto the metaverse, where people would have a reason to log onto the metaverse, where there would be markets in the metaverse that would allow capital to flow into the metaverse. And that would incentivize more people to join generate value that Facebook can, you know, reap on, uh, off the top. That's not going to be an easy task. And, you know, it would, it, it would take a hundred billion dollars, you know, um, or more to, to kind of even, t- you know, create the basic infrastructure in ensuring that the headsets are cheap enough, ensuring that. The- yeah. Do put, putting on a new, what, $1,500 headset is not. Yeah is not going to draw in new users. Yeah. You know, um, making your, your digital world look like IMVU is not going to draw in new users. Um, you know, cloning games that you could have played on your PlayStation one, uh, is not going to bring in new users. Um, 
but spending the tens of billions to create things that will bring in the users that then other money generators or capital allocators will be interested in to bring in more users is what's going to work. And so that's really what it is. I mean, I think that's also a big opportunity in that like the metaverse is not a natural thing. It has, it will have to be constructed very actively and at a lot of, at a high, high cost. So there's a lot of time to resist it and to really think about it and to articulate alternatives to it and to just say no to it. Because this is something that I think more so than other phases of privatization, the balkanization of the Internet uh, will feel a lot more visceral because you you have to literally enter another medium uh, that is a particularly, you know, disgusting and, and, and poorly made one by someone who a lot of people in this world hate. Yeah. Hey, you know, we can't feed everybody. We know that it's really hot outside. It was 70 degrees here last night, uh, by the way. Uh, super sucks. Uh, yeah. Uh, Halloween night, 70 degrees. Um, the things feel like they're getting worse, but you know what we can do? We can put you in a shipping container and we can put these goggles on your head and everyone can have a mansion in the metaverse. Right. Yeah. Everyone just needs to share that picture of the guy uh and it's like two pictures and one is the him in the metaverse you know uh jumping around or something like that and then another is just dimly lit room nothing is in it bed is on the floor uh no lights at all that is in one way or another like what they're trying to do um here yeah it's not a good picture no and you're right like you are creating a whole new world for the purposes of monetizing everything possible in that world. He's, he's run out of oil to extract from us personally. So he's creating a new thing to try to figure out a way to like hook us up to a machine to extract from us again. Yeah. And it's like the worst parts of many dystopias and cyberpunk uh, futures imaginable. I mean, uh, what is worse than not only being trapped in some simulacrum of reality where you can't even experience the taste and the smells and the touches but one that feels like it was made 30 years ago um, and is full of some of the most annoying people you'll ever meet, you know, crypto zealots. I mean, (laughs) it's this, there's nothing appealing about the Genesis of this new world. Um, Not Miki in chat has a good question. Um, The, the, one of the things that's always fascinated me about this, like you said, you know, it looks like it was made 30 years ago. Virtual reality is already out there uh, and is pretty fascinating and can be really fun. Uh, You know, VR chat exists and is chaotic and weird. It has that early internet energy. Um, Notmiki asks, any sense of why Meta didn't buy VR chat? Meta has not been shy about buying its way into new social media formats. I think that's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, what kind of, what kind of world does Meta want to make? Because you're right. You know, there are lots of possibilities for virtual reality and augmented reality. You know, so what is the one that will be the most amicable to advertising and commodification um, and new revenue streams? And it's probably one that just sidesteps that entirely. I mean, I think I think part of it is people motivated by and, and, and adhering a little too closely to this microtransactions model that's been uh, you know, proliferating um, in games and has been around for a while, but there, it just it just feels like it hews a little bit too closely to this idea that the way to get you to pay for life is to get you to simulate life 
and then pay for everything in even smaller tranches of transactions in that fake life, as opposed to, you know, a variety of virtual reality experiences where some of them might simulate life and some of them might not, you know, some of them might just be overlays of text. Some of them might be um, images or, you know, sites or sounds that have nothing to do with the, the sort of daily experience that you have. But that in of itself is not monetizable. What is monetizable is figuring out a way to get people to move through VR space and AR space in a way that simulates real life. And then advertisers can immediately plop something in that will get them to go out and buy something else, or that will get them to do a transaction inside. Yeah. When you're buying, and this is psychoanalyzing him a bit, but when you're buying VR chat, you are buying, um, a chaotic bundle and like does do companies want to place advertisements outside of the bar that is full of Hank Hills and Garfields that are yeah. like coalescing into weird Junji Ito horrors, right? right. Like, right. you know, do, do you, do you want to go into the, the room where everyone's role playing as different beer bottles and like try yeah. to figure out a way to sell those people a Toyota? Like, no, but I think you're right here. You know, I think, I do think like advertisers and, and people who are trying to do transactions are going to rely on curating spaces as much as possible. Um, and there's a VR reality in which you don't do that. And there's one where you do. And the one you, where you do is the one where you make the money, um, off of these transactions and advertisements. And the one where you don't is where you have a much harder time rationalizing to someone to let you spend a hundred billion dollars on IMVU club. Uh, and I think this all, it's, it's kind of funny. This is also a broader thing that I've been thinking about a lot because, uh, censorship and like control of online spaces is, is, is like a big discussion piece, like piece, you know, we have the intercept piece that came out yesterday about like the DHS trying to get involved um, like people on YouTube have a hard time figuring out what is, does, and doesn't fly there. Um, and we talk about like these figures at the top, like Elon Musk is writing into Twitter on the back of like, I'm going to free everybody. Right. But I, I think the thing that we don't talk about enough or talk around is that the reason like YouTube is feeling more and more sanitized and you can't say and do certain things on around there is the same reason that like broadcast and cable television also got sanitized uh, and why the internet became so popular. And it's because the money comes in because the advertisers come in and the big money has control over what is what the rules are on those platforms. And they are more the force that is kind of stifling speech in these places. I think. Um, Yeah. What, what say you to that? No, I think you're right. I think that, you know, when it when the the logic of these platforms, when you're looking for capital outside to subsidize them, if you're looking subsidize in the sense that like they want even more money so they can be more profitable, so they can take bigger returns back to their investors and shareholders. Um, you're you know these those forces are censorious in of themselves, right? Because you know, like we've been talking about, they want to curate spaces and they want to sanitize spaces so that they it's it's much easier to anticipate and operate off of an environment where you have nice little digestible bites and slices and demographic groups and identity groups that you're relying on. Um, And if you're going to be doing that, then 
censoring or altering or limiting speech in one way or another so that advertisers feel safe and feel like they're getting a channel directly to who they want to. Um, and also so that you can curate experiences and so you can curate commodities and so on and, and these transactions as well, right? So I do think that when once the money starts flowing in, it restructures everything, right? There's there's um there's a there's an insidious logic behind you know looking for outsized returns and excessive profits uh, that is antithetical to just like spontaneous expression and freedom of speech and creativity. Um, despite I think what some people might be led to believe, which is that like the more money you pour into something or the more money backing something, the more innovative it can be. When in reality. It's innovative in the sense that, you know, we're figuring out ways to preserve this formation um, and keep alternatives out. Right. It creates a stasis because uh, chaos is bad for business. Right. You know, it's harder to sell coffee, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in the middle of a disruption. Um, exactly. Something else I want to talk about that, that that's in your piece that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, it is also kind of having an emperor has no clothes moment. Uh, is this idea of techno feudalism? Mm-hmm. What is techno feudalism? So I think you know, techno feudalism is this idea that we're not in capitalism anymore. That um, you know, tech giants uh, have have figured out a way to disrupt the economic system, um, and as a result, you know, the most successful capitalists are these big tech firms that are not really concerned with taking excess profits and reinvesting them to expand, um, you know, their ability to produce at higher levels, which, you know, is a core, uh, core uh, crux of capitalism, or they're not taking their profits and using it to increase the productivity of laborers and, and how much they can generate per hour. Right. Instead, they're creating these surveillance platforms that are, you know, using workers in a precarious way for profit and that that is somehow distinct from capitalism. Right. But I think that, you know, the techno feudalist uh, argument, there are two things to it. One is that there's some truth in this sense and in this picture of the world, right? Surveillance platforms and surveillance are important to capitalism. And there feels like there's something special about these big tech firms because they're operating in the digital realm where we are spending our lives in a way that's different from how we might spend them in the workplace. And we have different relations to the platforms where we're spending them and to want to other people that we encounter on them. But I think it overestimates the role of surveillance here in that, like, you know, surveillance is, has always, has been a core part of capitalism, right? I mean, one of the most successful, you know, aspects of capitalism is generating new assets for people to consume um, or synthesizing new assets from pre-existing ones. And then using surveillance to make sure that people you consume them at necessary rates, right? Whether um, this is uh, in you know financial instruments, whether that's in loans of one one variety or another, whether that's in you know consumer goods or products, there's always a, a need to institute surveillance and some form of social control to ensure that people are consuming at a certain level. Um, the the introduction of platforms complicates the picture a little bit, um, and the and the argument ends up becoming that you know these platforms are no longer like productive you know nodes in this economic system, but they are you know pillars of a new system 
that might be thought of as infrastructure for the for the larger economy and, and, and society at large, right? They are doing the telecommunication systems. They're the ones who are running the energy system. They're the ones who are running the computational system. They're the ones who are running uh, the transportation system. You know, but when you dig deeper, you start to see a system that is, you know, more or less still capitalist. I mean, these big tech firms are still are reinvesting tens of billions of dollars into research and development every single year, no matter what. Um, even if the product is like we're talking about stasis, they are reinvesting the money to get, you know, to edge out more gains. But also these big tech firms don't even own the stuff, right? They're renting. Um, and that's also the other thing here, right? They're not rentiers who are extracting from us. They're renting, they're squatting on land, on cables, on data centers, on you know large tracts of land that are owned by real estate investment firms um, funds, um, and and so it ends up being that we're just looking at capitalism, but the digital side of it is just financialized assets, which is which are invested in to increase product productive capacity, which is just capitalism, you know. Right, and this this idea of techno feudalism becomes more of a a myth that Silicon Valley perpetuates. Yeah, that makes it seem like it has more power than it does. Yeah, it's a useful one. I mean, it's like you know, we are inevitable. We are the end destination of technological progress, and we have arrived at the end of history. Here, you know, we're just tinkering it out. You know, you guys don't have to worry about it. You know, we need to be big. We need to be a twenty dollar company. You just have to worry about you know you know, what, what five or six apps you want to use that we offer in your life. Yeah. A lovely Mintress bold bug future, uh, for all. Yes. Um, <laughs> Everyone will have your, butt or your bit, whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's pivot from there to, uh, I think one of the biggest techno feudalist weirdos of them all, Elon Musk. Uh, he owns Twitter now. Are you fleeing? No, I'm going to stay. I'm, I'm going to be in the pigsty with everybody else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to post less and less these days, but I'm, but I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling yeah. every day and just getting yeah. upset. <laughs> you know, over the past few years, I've definitely, I've been happy about how much I've cut down the tweeting, but I still spend, I spend time on there. Um, and I don't think that's going to change. You know, it's fun. I like having the ability to, um, to write a serious thread and then to shit post uh, the rest of the time. And also um, the experience I think won't start to decay immediately. So that's also another incentive to not leave or anything like that. Um, we'll see how bad it gets and how fast that happens though. Something, something I've been thinking about a lot is that for what I do, which is a lot of like geopolitics stuff and defense reporting. Like everybody's on there. Like Zelensky's tweeting. The Russian ministry of defense is tweeting. Um, You know, I wrote a story yesterday about the U S army Fort Sill talking about uh, posting a video of uh, blasting a high Mars with like blasting using a high Mars to blast candy at children. Um, Like, the powers of the world are talking to each other publicly there. And I don't know how that would change. Um, I mean, it it definitely could as you know, if there's anything that you should take away from this conversation audience, dear listener, it is that everything ends. Um, 
on a long enough timeline, all this stuff will fade away. So it will be supplanted by something else. But in the near term, yeah, it, it is hard for me to imagine a world where where Elon Musk chases these big players off the platform. Um, will he be able to extract twenty dollars out of them for uh, a blue check mark? Uh, that I don't think is going to work out the way he wants yeah. it to. Uh, would you pay twenty dollars a month for a blue check mark? There's there's no amount of money I would pay for Twitter. I don't. I'm not even going to do Twitter blue. I mean, like, like, I got Twitter by putting my name on a checklist. I mean, a uh, um a check. Uh, I got the check by putting it on a checklist. Right. And if I lose it, so be it. You know, I will. Like, it doesn't matter that much. And I think that. It is funny. I'm very curious also how he rolls it out. He's been waffling. He's like tweeting at everyone who tweets about it. Um, and the, and the, and the picking issue. a fight with Stephen King today. Yeah. A little silly there. <laughs> and, and there's a real issue. He has to raise enough money to pay down the billion dollar debt, um, billion dollar debt interest that, you know, comes out from all the debt financing. But my guy, 20, making the blue checks pay $20 a month is, <laughs> well, the, is not well, the, the math is it's something there's like 400,000 blue checks. Um, if you get $20 a month from them, that is if you get all of them to pay kick in $20 a month, which they're not all going to do, yeah. uh, it's 8 million, right? Is that going to even put a dent in anything? No, no, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Maybe this whole website is a bad business model and always has been. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. Maybe some things shouldn't be businesses and should just be offered for free and in the public interest, you know, not saying Twitter as it is right now is that, but there is a case to be made that, Hey, you know, maybe uh, you shouldn't turn Twitter into a business. Maybe one of the reasons why Facebook sucks so fucking much is because it keeps getting turned into or pushed towards lines of inquiry for business models, right? That maybe we should look at, public communication networks um, and this town square he keeps talking about he wants so much. This is uh, this leads to a great another comment from uh, the Twitch. Uh, Namiki says, I feel in recent years that users are on a platform, Discord, for example, and will be there until it becomes popular enough that advertisers and other stakeholders make it intolerable and then we'll move on. Conceiving of ourselves as digital nomads who will move from platform to platform to evade the worst effects of capitalism. Uh, I mean, yes, right? Like Discord is now bothering me every time I log on to give them three bucks a month for to, oh, to yeah. use like more avatars. And I'm like, I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> this is how the fever starts. You know, I think um, it's uh, it's really unfortunate in that, you know, the various internets we have are just you know, suffering or get, you know, infected with the, with the rot, with the advertiser rot and the money rot at different speeds, but eventually comes for everybody. Um, and figuring out how to hold that back is really going to be something that would, I think be a huge improvement, you know, freeing all of these platforms from money logic and market logic and focusing on like, what would actually be enjoyable? You know, what would actually be pleasurable? What would be a good way to connect with people? Instead of like, how can we structure it so that you hear as much as possible um, so I can generate advertiser revenue from you? I think that's a really great note to end on. Edward, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, Big Black Jacobin at Twitter. 
He is a great follow, uh, lots of serious threads, and also pretty amazing shit posts. Um, if you like cyber, please follow us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash motherboard or at Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. We are broadcasting live. Uh, you can notice the Ikea shelves in the background. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, there are Ikea shelves in the background. There may be an actual set here. Things may be upgraded soon. It may look better. I promise it's all happening. It's all happening. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We will be back a little bit later this week with another discussion. I think we're going to talk about Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. All right. See you all next, uh, next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.